mercy is everlasting and his truth does endure to all generations. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for his word, the singing, his grace, the grace he's given us to worship him, the word, prayer, singing, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord, fellowshipping of the saints. Such a sweet time uh, when we gather together. We just thank the Lord for this grace. Let us pray. Father, I thank you this morning. You are the lifter up of our heads. You lift up our hearts. Lord, you turn our eyes to you in the midst of all uh, that we go through on this uh, earth and this fallen world and this fallen people. Father, we are all sinners. But Lord, the great things that we have such a great Savior who saves us, who came to, to save his people from their sins. And Father, we thank you that none of us are without hope in this world because we have Christ. Christ is our hope. Christ is the hope of the world. Christ is the hope for all of eternity. And Lord, we thank you for this hope. Lord, it reminds me of the hymn that on Christ, the solid rock I stand. It says, Lord, our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I dare not Trust the sweetest frame, for wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, that those words to that great hymn are, are full of biblical theology. That our hope is built on nothing less than the blood of Christ, that his work on the cross in atoning for our sins, his substitutionary death, dying in our place, dying the death that we deserve, bearing the curse of sin, the, the curse of the law. Lord, we thank you for that work. The Bible tells us that cursed is every man who dies on a tree. And Christ became a curse for us so that we would not have to endure the curse of sin. Lord, what a great Savior. What a great Savior who took on the curse of sin for us, who took on the condemnation, who paid the ultimate price that none of us could pay in a million lifetimes. And that is the penalty for sin and rebellion against a holy father, a holy God. Lord, I just want to cause us to pause to just think about what Christ did. You know, in our biblical counseling meeting, we were, were talking about counseling each other as believers and, 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 and pastors counseling uh, members of our churches and, and asking foundational questions. And one of the questions we talked about was, who matters most, Christ or our experiences? Not that our experiences don't, don't matter and that they, they don't have any any type of uh, impact on us, but Father, often we we make we magnify our problems, we magnify our experiences at the expense of diminishing Christ and diminishing who He is and diminishing what He came to do. We 
we, we, we do that and we lose our focus on what God has done for us through Christ because we are choked with the problems of this world. So Father, help us to center our thoughts, center our meditation, center our imaginations on Christ and his complete work. His work is complete. It is total. It is finished. When he declared victoriously on the cross, it is finished. That wasn't a surrender. That wasn't him giving up the battle. That was him declaring that his work of salvation, his work of redemption, his work of reconciliation is finished. His work of paying for our sins is finished. His work of being the truth of God revealed in the flesh is finished. Lord, his work is done. It is complete. He now sits in heaven at your right hand, ruling and reigning as our high priest, serving us as our advocate, serving us as our intercessor, serving us and pleading our righteousness before you as Satan stands and accuses us. Lord, may we see this great Savior and be thankful and be grateful and to give him all the praise, the honor, and the glory. Lord, as we look at our prayers also this morning, we pray for our brothers and sisters uh, to the north of us in Canada who are dealing with a tyrannical uh, leader in Justin Trudeau who has enacted uh, barbaric laws against his own countrymen, against his own people because of their protest against uh, vaccine mandates that are affecting our brothers and sisters and in churches up there, Lord, we, we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in Canada that they, they persevere under this tyrannical leadership, that the gospel continues to proliferate, that it continues to spread and be disseminated among the Canadian people. Canada is a very secular country. But Lord, we're praying for the faith, faithful gospel churches up there, that you strengthen them by your spirit that you strengthen them with the power of the gospel and that their powerful preaching and that them sowing the word into their members, that their members take the gospel message out with them and spread it throughout that nation. And that souls may be saved, that hearts may be converted and regenerated, which will lead to right thinking, which will lead to, to right policies that will promote the flourishing of image bearers of God. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in this nation who are living in certain states where there are unreasonable mandates against them restricting their worship. Lord, that you may strengthen those pastors and give them a, a gospel bonus to do what is good for their, their church members, their, their church family to do what is going to feed and shepherd their flock. 
And Lord, pray for brothers and sisters around the world, fellow Christians in persecuted countries and also in free countries, Lord, that the gospel proliferates, that it spreads, that you help them to endure the persecution that they are receiving also by their fellow countrymen, by their fellow leaders. Father, be with them also. Be with your church this morning as they gather on the Lord's day throughout this world, Lord, that the gospel is proclaimed, that the gospel goes forth with power and with great biblical conviction and without fear of retribution. Lord, may we fear you more than we fear man. And Father, I lastly pray for our sister churches, Anderson Bible and Grace Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship, and all the other churches in our cohort, um, Mountain View Church with uh, Brother uh, Justin Holland and Iron City Baptist with Brother uh, Cody Hale, Brother Curley down in First Baptist of Lionville and other like-minded pastors, Lord, that are fellowshipping with us, that you be with those brethren this morning. Be with us all, Lord, as we endeavor to shepherd the flock of God with, with great oversight and with great care. preach the gospel to preach Christ to equip the saints for the work of ministry to equip us Lord in discipling one another to equip us to go and live out in the public square and not uh, be fearful of the false um, the false doctrines and false ideologies that are um, prominent in our world but Lord give us all Holy Spirit boldness to be faithful to proclaiming the truth of God and now, Father, I come down to praying for the preaching of this message as we uh, look at you, discovering more about you through this prayer of confession, that we consider your great mercy to your people, Lord, your faithfulness to Israel, and also your faithfulness to us as sinners. Lord, may we learn more about you and live by what we learn and share what we learned this morning in Christ's name I pray amen amen praise the Lord nevertheless in your great mercy we're discovering more about God in this passage this morning I hope that you had a chance to read this prayer of confession it's, it is one of the great prayers in all of holy scripture and this is actually the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, it is even longer than Jesus's um, high priestly prayer in John 17. And it, it is longer than Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. I did a sermon series uh, some years ago, probably in 2012 or 2013 on the uh, great prayers in the Bible. And this was one of them and the, the, uh, Solomon's prayer of thanks in first Kings eight and of course Jesus' high priestly prayer in John seventeen uh, was among them that I, I preached through expositionally and this prayer right here is the longest of all those prayers. We looked at Daniel's prayer of confession in Daniel the ninth chapter. There's some some great prayers in scripture, great prayers that you can also pray yourself. And this prayer is very rich in in uh, learning more about God and his great mercy toward his people. So let's read this prayer uh, 
together, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version uh, of the Bible. This prayer in uh, Nehemiah, the ninth chapter. I hope that, again, you had a chance to uh, to read it and that the Lord uses it uh, to his glory uh, in your life and in mine. Amen. So it begins here. Um, now on the 24th day of this month. And this was on the hills, by the way, of the great celebration of the Temple of Booths. I'm sorry, the Festival of the Booth, the, the, uh, the great Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And so this is on the hills of that. It was a celebration. So it picks up here now on the 24th day of this month. The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Just skipping back here for context. Remember the last chapter we read where the law of God was read to them. And that was done for seven days where they heard the law. So after they heard the law, guess what? We get their response to it. And what is their response to hearing the law? Sackcloth and ashes and with earth on their heads. That's the ashes. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. So for three hours, the law was read. And for another three hours, they confessed their sin. And we say of the day because this was daylight. Okay, it was about 12 hours of daylight. They didn't do it at night. So for the first three hours, you know, the first quarter, they read the scriptures, they read the law. And then for the second three hours, they confess their sins. So it continues, verse 4, it lists all the Levites on the stairs. And then verse 5, the Levites, it lists them again. And they said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Bless your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So this was the beginning of their prayer. They first began by blessing the Lord and giving adoration to him. And then here is this prayer of confession. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You made the heavens and the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. So it starts off by talking the righteousness of God and about the faithfulness of God to Abraham. And it says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of 
the sea on dry ground, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them, light for them rather the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them the commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So what did we learn so far? God is a gracious God. He provided for them. He made a way for them. He defeated their enemies. He gave them his good laws, his good statutes, his right rules, and his true laws. So all we see in the introduction to this prayer is how good God is, how good God was to Israel. One of the greatest transition words in all the English language is but. Okay, that is a good conjunction. That's one of the greatest conjunctions in all of the English language. So verse 16 in my translation, it says what? But, I don't know what yours says. Some may say nevertheless. But, you contrast God's goodness with man's rebellion. But they went out, I'm sorry, they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Those people who claim that God, the God of the Old Testament is a murderous God. They don't read their Bibles. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart for them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear and their feet did not swell. Look at God. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to uh, them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of uh, Heshbon, by their children as the stars of the heaven. You brought them into the land which you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued them. The I'm sorry, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they should. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, 
olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the enemies you made, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies. You gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of the enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercy. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, that's where we got our sermon topic from, you did not make an end of them nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdoms and amidst your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave them to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And his rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document of the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. May the Lord bless his word. I hope you all saw as we read that God's great mercy to unfaithful people. God's goodness to rebellious people. 
again, as I said earlier, this is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. This confession that's recorded in this prayer uses the language of older scriptures. A lot of this prayer uses language of older scriptures, meaning that these priests who are uh, these Levites, the priests who wrote this prayer, they knew the word of God. Verse 6, for example, points to Psalm 86 and 10 and Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 10. Verse 9 points to Exodus 3 and 7. Verse 10, Jeremiah 32. Verse 11, Exodus 15 and 5. Verse 12, Exodus 13 and 21. Verse 13, Exodus 19 and 20. And so forth and so on. As you read this prayer, you see allusions to those older texts. So this is a very biblical prayer. And so where we land ourselves here is uh, two weeks have passed since the Feast of Booths. And the people were, uh, you know, turning to renew their covenant with God by praising him and confessing their sins and petitioning him. So that's kind of the context of where we are in this part of this book. And so as a sign of their covenant renewal and or by business affairs. So, you know, those men who married the foreign wives, they had to put them away for this time of confession. Those foreign women, those Israelite women who married those foreign men, they had to put them aside. Those who had business affairs with some of the foreigners, they had to put them aside. This was a serious time for Israel <laughs> to separate themselves from those who were not of Israel. They did not want to compromise the integrity of the Jewish community. So they had to separate themselves. They had to segregate. They had to discriminate. Not all discrimination is wrong discrimination, by the way. So they had to do that. That's what, that's what the call was. Separate yourselves from those foreigners around them. That's what they were called to do. And they stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities. One of the mega themes in this prayer, there are two, as I alluded to it earlier, the two mega themes in this prayer is God's faithfulness and man's unfaithfulness. I'm sure you all saw that contrast as you read it uh, and then as I, as, as, as I read it. God's faithfulness, man's unfaithfulness. God's holiness, man's sinfulness, unholiness, man's rejection. God is altogether holy. He is the great God. God provided for them, and they still rebelled. You know, and what I was thinking about as, as we go to our principles here is no matter how much you have materially, I explained this to one of my sons yesterday, no matter how rich you are, no matter how much you have, you can still turn and be wicked and not serve God. Just because you have doesn't mean that you are going to serve and worship God. He says, even in their own kingdom, and amidst your great goodness that you gave them, in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. That shows you how wicked man's heart is. You can have all 
the material wealth in this world, that's not that's that's not going to cause you to worship God. Actually, it's going to take your heart. It's 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 harder, not impossible, but it's harder for a camel, as Jesus said, to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into eternal life. Then I mean, it can't happen. It's just harder because that rich man, that rich woman, their hope is going to be in their riches. And those who have that worldview obviously have not read the book of Ecclesiastes, <laughs> which tells us that all is vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So we see man's unfaithfulness, but we see God's faithfulness. So the big idea is that ten, we're going to see ten aspects of God's nature and character in this prayer. And they're as important for us today as they were for these fifth century believers century BC uh, believers so um, these are principles for us it's about 10 of them but we're going to do them in short order uh, so have no fear um, but these are 10 things that we learn about God in this prayer that I wanted to see and what this does hopefully is help you as you read prayers in the Bible that prayers all about God as we're praying we're praying to who God prayer is not about us even as we pray privately Prayer is about God. We're praying to God. Okay? We're praying for his glory, to his glory. Okay? And when we pray, our prayer should be about God. Okay? Not me, 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 me. We do ask for things, but we ask for them based on God's what? His character. So, again, it goes back to God. How, how do we look at God? How do we view God? That is how we're going to pray. We're going to pray according to our view of God. If we look at God as a cosmic uh, Santa Claus or cosmic vending machine where we just take all of our wants and needs and desires to him and say, Lord, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, we have a wrong view of God. But as they did, they approached God as the great God. They gave adoration to him and because he is the one to whom we are to direct our prayers. So what 10 things do we learn about God and his nature, his character in his prayer? First, God shows us his nature. Verse 5. The end of it. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name who is exalted above all blessing and praise. God reveals his eternality. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the God of infinity. You know, when, when I talked about that, when I preached about the attributes of God last year, I talked about the infinitude of God, the aseity of God, that, that God is utterly eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has no cause. God is the uncreated one. He is the uncaused one. He is the eternal God. He is the God of infinity. He is limitless and he is timeless. That's what it means from everlasting to everlasting. Other prayers and songs echo this truth about God. David, in, 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 in one of the great prayers of the Bible in, in um, 1 Chronicles 29, it says, David blessed the God for the assembly. He says, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
So David in his prayer, his praise to God, bless God as being the God of infinity, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. The introduction to this prayer by the Levites focuses the people on the wider horizons of God, who God truly is, instead of the smallness of themselves. You know, praying about ourselves is so small because we're so finite, we're so limited, we're so weak, we're so helpless. Why focus on ourselves when we pray? We're finite. We're, we're like a vapor, as Scripture uh, describes. We're like the grass that withers away. Why should we be so sel selfish and, and self-centered and self-focused in our prayers? Well, we are so finite beings. God can just snap his hand and we drop dead just like that. Why should we focus on ourselves? We, when we pray to God, we're focusing on the, the bigness of God, the magnificence of God. That God is beyond our imagination. And that's what the Levites here were centering them on, just like we saw this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look upon his glorious face. Why? Because he is glorious. He is the glorious one. He is the holy one. He is the altogether righteous one. And that's why we turn our eyes to him. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes to the hills, looking up to Israel. Where does my help come from? My help comes from who? The Lord, the sovereign God who made the heavens and the earth. They were acknowledging his sovereignty. And that's what we see in the opening part of this prayer. And that is how our prayers should be. They went from despair to hope in a God who is infinitely greater. But a God who cares and hears their prayers. What greater person to put our hope in than someone who is infinitely greater than we are? Because all flesh is grass. There is no person on this earth who is infinitely greater than God or, or, or who are even infinitely greater than us. There's no enlightened person on this earth who's more. You know what? They're flesh just like we are. They're going to go to dust just like we are. They're, they're going to have to stand before God just as we are. They're just being a different line. <laughs> okay? We'll be on the right hand. They'll be on the left. But they're still mere mortals. Next, we see God proclaiming his Uniqueness. We see this in verse 8. You are the Lord, you alone. You are the Lord, you alone. God has no rivals. God has no equals. This prayer includes the uncompromising confession. You alone are the Lord. This affirms the obedience to the first and second commandments. There's one God. You're not to put any other gods before him. It reminds him of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's the Shema. Your Lord is one. Paul affirms this in Ephesians 4. There's one God, one faith, one baptism, 
one Lord and Father of all, who is above you all, in you all, and through you all. But he begins that by saying there's how many gods? There's one God. He is God alone. He alone is unique. God is unique in the fact that he alone is God. And he will not give his glory to another. He proclaimed that uh, to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42 and 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. Nor my praise to carved images. Or in our context, to idols, to our phones, to our possessions. To our thinking, our ideologies, our philosophies. God will not give his glory to anything or anyone, any created thing. God will not give his glory to. Why? Because he is God alone. And that's what Israelists proclaim here. And that is what we proclaim as we pray to God. That he is holy, that he is separate and apart. He is God. We are his creation. We're not in one big circle, as we learned on Wednesday night. No, God is separate from his creation. There's distinguishing between God and creation. There's a separation there. He is God alone. God is self-sustaining. God does not need anything or anyone to sustain him. That's what, when he uh, proclaimed to Moses, I am who I am, that is the self-sustaining, self-sufficient God, that God is sufficient in himself, that he relies on none other. That's what it means by I am who I am. That I'm unique, that there's none like me, that no one can sustain me, that I have no beginning, that I have no end. You cannot add to him or take away from him. He is the great I am. And Jesus himself, our Savior, is the great I am. He gave seven great I am statements in the Gospel of John, proclaiming himself to be God. In John 8, with the Pharisees, he told them, before Abraham was, I am. That meant that he always was, he always will be, and he always is. God. That is the uniqueness of God, that there's none like them. It is a significant affirmation for our time, too, especially in our pluralistic culture where everybody says that all gods are basic all religions are basically the same <laughs> when they're not everybody worships basically the same god that's pluralism any rampant idolatry that we have in our culture the the worship of self the worship of our quote sexual identity the worship of uh, politics and political parties and political ideologies, all these things have become idols. The worship of personalities, the worship of celebrity, the worship of social media influence. All these things have become idolatrous. And the church is facing these challenges also. The church has been infiltrated by syncretism, the mixing of Christianity and other uh, false systems of religion which is no Christianity at all we must know that God is God alone and Raymond Brown said in in his book on this uh, passage he says I'm on the wrong page here we go 
He says here, modern people have idols of other than grotesque statues. He says their idols reign in the heart. He says they worship prosperity, popularity, pleasure, and power. And those who idolize these invisible icons persistently turn their backs on the only God. He says further, the pluralistic nature of the late 20th century Western society would not tolerate this uncompromising biblical exclusivism. Exclusivism, rather. It prefers a pick-and-mix religion, a view which regards all religions, ancient and modern, as of equal worth. You know, all religions are basically the same. Many of our contemporaries prefer to select acceptable elements, not only from older world religions, but also from new, such as the bizarre ideas in New Age, with its primary focus on the uh, preeminent self of self-awareness and self-fulfillment and, and self-worship and self-love rather than the reality of human sin and the crucial need for a divine savior. None of those false religions focus on the reality of human sin. Only Christianity does that. The only one true God, the only one true religion focuses on that. And the need for a divine savior. None of these other religions. All those religions on that uh, paper out there on our wall that's been up there for years. I don't know if you had a chance to ride by just look at how biblical Christianity is contrasted with all these other uh, false religions. None of them believe in sin. And if they do, they don't believe in a divine savior in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the doctrine of original sin and total depravity. That sin began in the garden and that we're conceived in sin. They don't believe in that. If you don't believe in that, you don't believe in the one true God, the uniqueness of God, how he is above his creation. Next, God displays his power. We see that in the second part of verse 6. How do we see that? He made what? The heaven. The heavens of heavens, all the constellations and galaxies below what we can see with our natural eye. With all their hosts, the different nebula out there, all the, 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 the you know, they send those telescopes up there, the Hubble telescope and all these others to, to look into the vastness of the universe. And guess what? God made that out there too. He made the heavens of heaven and all their hosts. He made the earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven does what? Worships you. So it proclaims God's power. He is the creator. He made everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. God made everything. And because God made everything, guess what? He can do anything. God made everything. That displays his power. He can give life to anything or he can leave men without strength if he so desires. That's what he can do. Why? Because he's God. He can leave men without strength. The same God who creates, not only does he create, but guess what? He maintains what he creates by his own power. He preserves both man and beast. 
The psalmist says this in Psalm 36 and 6. Your righteousness is like the great mountain. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. I always use these illustrations when you're out driving. I like going out in the country sometimes, just, just going for a drive, just enjoying what God has created. And you think, the animals out there in those woods, when you go out hiking sometimes, you run across birds and in golf bit you run across uh, some type of four-legged animal <laughs> they try to attack you but even in that sense who provides them with food God does God created them to either be carnivores or omnivores either they eat meat or they eat the plants or they eat both if they're omnivores omnivorous but God does what he preserves them he preserves them. Now, because creation is in sin, fell into sin also, not all of them live. Some of them die. Some of them do die of starvation. Because the whole earth has been corrupted by the fall. But God still provides for animals way out in the middle of nowhere. He preserves both man and beast. Do you know that some homeless people have a better diet than you do? They do. God takes care of them through the common grace of others. He preserves man. He takes care of man. That shows God's great power over his creation. And we ought to look to that. Next. God keeps his promises. This is getting down to the, the meat of it. Verses 7 and 8. So we see that. The promise that he made with who? Abram. He called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 12 and 1. And gave him the name Abraham. Abraham was faithful before God. And God made a covenant with him to make him a great nation. That all the worlds, all the peoples of the world <laughs> would be blessed through him. That he was going to make him a great nation. That his people were going to go to possess a land. So God called Abraham at age 75 to leave his country, to leave his kindred, to leave his family, and to go to a place where he would show him. So they were speaking of God's promise. God is the great promise keeper. He keeps all his promises because he is righteous. He says that here at the end of verse 8. And you have kept your promise. Why? For. For means because. Because you are righteous. Why does God keep his promises? Because he is righteous. He is the righteous God. He is the only one who is totally righteous. We can be unrighteous at times as man. But God is always righteous. Which means that he always keeps his promise. Always. All the promises of God fulfilled in Abraham were initiated by God himself. There were divine sovereign actions that were evident in Abraham's life that Abraham had no control over. None. Over him and his wife. Who gets pregnant at age 100? <laughs> Ladies? You have some women through artificial means who get pregnant in their 50s and 60s. Past childbearing ages, they say. But 100? And Abraham, 90, still fertile? Who could only have done that? 
God. That was God's divine sovereignty in his life. They were on display in Abraham's life. God chose him from earth. God changed his name. God knew him. He had a faithful heart. And God used him by making a covenant with him. The God who made these covenant promises to Abraham kept them by fulfilling them. And one of my favorite scriptures about God fulfilling his promises is Joshua's final speech in Joshua, the 23rd chapter. Joshua gave his great great speech and he was saying he was going the way of all the earth. He was advanced in olden age as the scripture says here he called for all Israel, the elders, the heads of the judges, the officers and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you for the Lord your God. It is he who has fought for you. Then he talked about how he um, departed. I'm sorry, how God had divided the land among the peoples. God had drove all the enemies out. He says in verse 14, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know, in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing had failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. That's what he gave Israel as their marching orders. All that God promised Israel, guess what? He's done. He gave you the land. He allotted all the tribes their allotment. He gave them the command to go and drive out all the enemies. Everything that God said, guess what? He did. And still to this day, whatever God promised in his word, guess what? He fulfilled it. When God says he is with you, guess what? He is with you. That was one of the encouragements we got from our pastor's meeting to encourage our, our members. On your job, when it's hard, guess what? Remember, God is with you. He's always with you. Why? Because he's faithful. He's God. He's good. He's righteous. He's always with you. He is sustaining you. He is preserving you. He is persevering you. He is praying for you. Why? Because he keeps his promise. And that is what we we make promises all the time to people. I'm going to pay you back, man. I got you. <laughs> I got you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to show up here. I'm going to show up there. And, we, and, you know, we're well-intentioned, but we're sinners. We're falling. We're not going to always do that. But who does? God. He keeps his promise. And Joshua encouraged Israel with that as he was departing. He was old and advanced in age, and he wanted to leave them that fact that God keeps his promise, that he's kept all his promises. Next principle, God manifests his love. We see this in verses 9 through 12. He saw the affliction of their fathers. He heard their cry. So what did he do? He delivered them. He divided the sea before them. And also, he guided them with what? A pillow cloud by day 
and a pillar of fire by night. That's God demonstrating his love. He is the God who loves. He saw the suffering of his people. And he responded to their pleas for deliverance. We find this in Exodus 2 and Exodus 3. He responded. God didn't hear them say, oh, you on your own. It was your fault. That Pharaoh didn't know uh, Joshua. I'm, uh, I'm sorry. That, that Pharaoh didn't know Joseph and, and your father Jacob. You know, I'm, uh, you know, you just got to deal with it. You've been there 400 years already. <laughs> okay. No. God heard their cries and guess what? He acted. That's love. That's love. He demonstrated his love. That pleases the living. God saw, he showed, he divided, and he led. That's what we see here. Verse 9, God saw. He showed by doing what? Performing signs. I mean, performing signs. Verse 11, he divided. And then he led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. We see God going into action. His love towards Israel was living and active. It was not a passive love. Do you know that love is always active and not passive? Christ showed his love by what? Dying for us. It was an active love. He showed his love toward them not only for Israel's sake, but also for the glory of his name. We see that here in verse 10. You made a name for yourself. God's name. God's glory was renowned throughout the area. Why? Because he had done this great thing for his people. Don't you know word got around? These two, three million people walking through a sea on dry ground with water on both sides. Coming out. There were probably people around that saw that. This wasn't like no man's land. So the glory, the fame of God's name was spread throughout the region. It was for the glory of his name. And their sins. And God did something. Love saw the suffering of the oppressed Israelites and did something. Man, this is so great just thinking about it. Jesus saw the suffering of the sinner under the oppression of sin and did something. In Israel's case, it was God who delivered them from Egyptian slavery by sending Moses. And again, I always remember this about uh, the Exodus account. It's not just a nice story. It's a story that points to the gospel. Israel represented sin. I'm sorry, Egypt represented sin. Going through the Red Sea represented deliverance from sin, led by a mediator who was Moses, because it was Moses who stretched out his rod. Moses is a type of Christ as God's prophet, priest, and king of his people. And so Moses points to Christ. So God delivered them from slavery by sending who? Moses. In our case, God delivered us from bondage from sin by sending Christ. When sinners cry out to God for salvation, guess what? God what? Saves them. This is Israel when they cried out from the bondage of slavery. God heard them. When the sinner cries out to God 
Lord, save me, and repents. Guess what God does in his mercy? Us free. Praise the Lord. Praise. He changed their lives, and he does the same for us today. And not only does God save us, but he guides us. That pillar of uh, fire, pillar of cloud, represented the spirits leading, the Holy Spirit leading the people. Spirit of God leading God's people through the wilderness. And we as believers have God's spirit leading us. That is one of the roles of the third person of the Trinity is to, to lead us and to teach us, as Jesus said. I'm going to see the comforter to teach you. Most of the things I've said to you. He guides us. He leads us. He works God's word in us. That's what love does. Amen. Next, God unfolds his will. Verses 13 through 15. He's God who comes down and speaks. So we see 13 through 15. He gave what? Commandments. He came down. Who else came down? Christ. <laughs> so God came down and spoke with them from heaven. Gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. He made them know a Sabbath, commandments and statutes. He gave them bread from heaven. He fed them. He unfolded his will. Our God is a living God compared to the pagan gods. God comes down to us. We don't have to go up to him. That's the great thing about the gospel, that God came down, the condescension of God, that he came down. All the other pagan religions, which are all other religions except Christianity, they have to go up to their God. They have to seek their God. But guess what? Our God sought us. Jesus said he came to do what? Seek and save those who are lost. He calls us to him. He says in John 11, I'm sorry, Matthew 11, come unto me. But we can't come to him except first that he what came down to us. He comes, he calls out, he comes. So what did he do? He gave them his commands. He gave them his statutes. He gave them the ordinances to Moses to give to the people. His laws met all of their needs, their morally needs. Why? Because they were right and they were true. Morality is the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. So his law met their moral needs. It met their physical needs in a Sabbath, a day of rest. It met their material needs by giving them what? Bread from heaven in verse 15. He met their material needs. I need some bread from here right now because my stomach is growling, but I'll be fine. <laughs> but he met their material needs and he met their spiritual needs. And they could trust that God would accomplish his will for them. Why? Because they knew that God was righteous. He gave them right rules, right ordinances. He gave them true laws. He knew that God was good. He gave them good statutes. He gave them commandments. Do we know that commandments are good and not evil? 
Do we understand that? Commandments are for our good. First John tells us that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not a burden. We need commandments. We need guardrails. We need the restraining power of God's commandments on the human heart. Just imagine a life, a world without. We can't imagine it. A world that's unrestrained. I tell you what, we wouldn't have 8 billion people on earth. <laughs> that's the case. Next, God demonstrates his mercy. Verses 16 through 18. So this is where we get to the but. But our fathers acted presumptuously. Okay. They ignored God's word. They stiffened their necks. And they did not obey. They refused. Man. Hard-headed people. God is the God of mercy. Despite all that God said and did, guess what? They acted proudly. That's what uh, presumptionally means, to, to, to be proud, to be boastful, to presume. They stiffened their necks. They did not heed his commands. They refused to obey. They were inconsiderate of his wonders. They didn't even think about the wonders that God had performed, the fact that he even led them by a cloud <laughs> and a pillar of fire. They ignored that. They ignored it. They were inconsiderate. That's one of the worst sins. The sin of inconsideration, of apathy, and uh, gratitude. That is such a grave sin. Especially when you're a witness to what God has done. They appoint a leader to return them to Egypt. You know, back in uh, Exodus 32 when they made the golden calf. They made a golden calf to worship as their God. But before we look at Israel, we must look at our stubborn pride. Look at our pride. Look at how we can be. Look at how stubborn we can be. We must look at our willful disobedience. How we can willfully disobey God. How we can uh, quench the Spirit's influence in our life. And Paul tells us don't quench the Spirit. When we don't resist temptation. When we don't heed God's word. Our ingratitude. Not mindful of his wonders again, like it says here in verse 17. Our rebellion, just like they rebel by appointing a leader over them. Idolatry, they fashion a golden calf. We must be aware of ours. If not for the merciful God and not for him coming to rescue us, we would be doomed. We have to look at our own hearts. We have to look at the sin in our own heart. The times we make idols, the times where we show ingratitude to God, the times when we rebel against God or against God's rule and authority in our life, the times when we make golden calves in the form of created things as our gods and worship them. But in the midst of all that, despite all this, God demonstrated his abundant mercy. God is ready to pardon. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abundant in kindness. And he did not forsake them. What a great contrast again between man's rebellion and God's mercy. And guess what? In Christ we have the same thing. We have a Savior who despite the ugliness of our sin. He bore them on the cross. Despite what our sin cost him. 
he still went to the cross to rescue us from the wrath of God that was poured upon us. We need to be reminded again of Romans 5 and 8, as I read this morning, our call to worship, that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? He died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says in another book, the just for the unjust. The just God died for unjust man. We need to remind ourselves of that truth. I mean, next God shows his generosity. He's the God who gives. Despite their rampant sin, God who is merciful gave. Verses 19 through 25 capture that. As I read, he still gave. He did not forsake them. He gave them the pillar. He gave them his good spirit in verse 20. He did it for how long? 40 years. He gave them kingdoms and peoples in verse 22. He gave them all those lands to possess. They captured and fortified cities. He gave, he gave, he gave. Why? Because God is a giving God. He is a generous God. He gives gifts to all of his children. Raymond Brown says this. This is kind of convicting. He says, before we condemn them, Israel, we're speaking of this passage, we need to ask ourselves whether we count God's blessings and recall his goodness in our lives. Every opportunity for prayer ought to begin with in adoration, acknowledging who God is, then continuing in thanksgiving, recognizing what he has done for us. All too often, we crave for more, forgetting what we already have. Ouch. But it's true. We crave for more. And it's so easy for us to do that. We focus on what we don't have, and we, 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 we crave for more instead of focusing on what God has already given us. Israel did that in the book of Numbers 14, where uh, it was, I think it was Numbers 12 or 14, uh, when they wanted meat, they wanted quail. They talk about, oh, all the, the meat they had in Egypt. <laughs> you know, they described it in detail. All the fish and everything that they had, and here we have this here manna. They were not satisfied with what God was giving them. They were unthankful. They were not thanking the Lord for his generosity. Next, God exercised his patience. This is most of all important too. Verses 26 through 31, we see that. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And this is, a, this is recurring in those verses. They were not obedient, but when they cried out, guess what God did? He responded. He answered. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. He gave them to the hand of their enemies. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them. But after they had rest, guess what? They did the same thing. Yet when they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them. We see in this the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. 
God suffering long with his people. Man. Man, man, man. God did not utterly consume them, as the writer said here in verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious mercy for God. But guess what? They deserved it. Just like we deserve condemnation. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to be made in the end of. But what a great God. Thank God for his what? His patience. God's kindness and patience. His goodness leads toward repentance. Paul said that in Romans 2 and 4. Why is God patient with unbelievers? So that they may what? Repent. That's why he's patient with them. That's why he's long-suffering. He is the God who suffers long. He suffers long with us, even as believers. Jesus suffered long with his disciples. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. You've been with me all this time. You still don't understand? But guess what? God is so patient with us. Just as he's patient with Israel, he's patient with us. And we thank the Lord for his patience that while we were in our sins, that he didn't make an end to us. We could have died in our sins. I could have died in my sins before May 12, 1991. And I would have been eternally separated from God in hell, suffering forever for all eternity. But we thank God for his mercy and his patience. Amen. And then lastly, God proved his faithfulness. Verses 32 through 37. Now, therefore, our great God, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That, that'll be a nice bumper sticker. I don't think it will sell a lot. You have, uh, you say God has acted, God has dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly, and then put uh, Nehemiah 9 and 33, and see how many bumper stickers of that you'll sell. Not many. But that is a truth. God dealt faithfully with his people while the people acted wickedly. What a great contrast. When he, when we are faithful as God remains faithful, Paul says that in 2 Timothy 2 and 13. God keeps covenant and mercy. He has dealt faithfully. But they, Israel and we, deal wickedly. You know what all this goodness shows again? How God contends with his people. It shows the greatness of our God. And the love of our God. And again. Reminds us of how sinful we are. And how we need such a great savior. Down by the guilt. And tormented by their sinful record. Across the centuries. They can still revel in that great goodness. 
all all that history was recalled, guess what? They still rested on the fact that God is good. And that is a great hope for us. Yes, we can look back on our life and say, man, we really messed up in some areas. We really sinned against God in some areas. We really rebelled against God in some areas. We really presumed upon grace in some areas of our life. But guess what? We can still say, nevertheless, God's mercy has been with us. That God still loves us. That God still saves us. That God still preserves us. We can still look to this great God. That God, in spite of my sin, you have dealt faithfully with me. That's to lead us to our knees in praise and adoration of him. As we said, we're discovering more about God through this prayer, and I hope that we discover that. Amen? Amen. Applications here. As Christ followers, we are grafted into this family. We're grafted into Israel because of Christ. And we can share in this prayer for mercy by our covenant-keeping God. Because we've been engrafted into the vine, into the family. Guess what? We have those same covenant promises that they had. Because through Christ, through his saving work. Paul says this, he reminds him this in uh, Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. For then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So we're just as much a part of that inheritance as the Israel, Israel is. Number two, as Christ's followers, we are Abraham's seed and inherit all of those unfailing promises of total sufficiency and unlimited grace. We have total sufficiency in Christ and we have unlimited grace of Christ because we are Abraham's seed. We are his spiritual seed. We're not Jews, but we are his spiritual seed. And because of that, we have all those promises. We can know and name the Christ in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Paul says this in Second uh, Corinthians 1 and 10. That all the promises of God and Christ are yes and amen. All of them. Second Corinthians 1 and 10. They are yes and amen. They mean that they are sure and they are true. Then lastly, the Old Testament people of God knew that God was full of grace and truth. They do that. Just by this prayer right here we see that. We see grace and truth embodied in Christ. Christ is full of grace and truth. John said that in, in John 1. We beheld the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. So even in the Old Testament. They experienced the grace of God. And we see it in the person of. Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you 
for your patience with us. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, we feel in the conviction this morning. May that conviction lead to, to repentance, to prayer, to confessing the sin of ingratitude, the sin of, of not considering your, your faithfulness to us, your love to us. And Lord, as we pray, as we, we look to you, help us to see how great our Savior is, how great you are, Lord, as our God and Father. Lord, as we saw today, the scripture record testifies of your goodness and our sinfulness. But Lord, the great thing is that you don't leave us in our sins. You don't leave us alone. You don't leave us helpless and hopeless. But Father, rather, you lead us into a salvation that has been granted to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that those who hear this message who are not believers, that they repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, you are patient with them right now. But, Father, when that clock strikes and Christ comes back, time is out. There will be no second chances. May they not presume upon your grace and take it for granted. But may they bow the knee and repent. And Lord, for us as believers, may we be encouraged by the fact that you are faithful, that you fulfill all your promises, that you are always with us, that you will never leave us, never forsake us, that you're interceding for us, that you are our advocate as our high priest. Lord, thank you as we learn more about you this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen.